spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely their fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Smirconish Podcast for independent minds. Perhaps you've heard of the Dirty Dozen. Great World War II movie. Came out in the late 60s. Lee Marvin, Telly Savalas. I'm doing this from memory. Uh, Jim Brown, Charles Bronson, Mikhail's Navy, Ernest Borgnine. That was the Dirty Dozen. How about the Disinformation Dozen? What am I talking about? I'll give you the quick background before I welcome a special guest whose company did the research that came up with that term. It was a Thursday presser, Jen Psaki, in the White House briefing room, speaking about 12 people who are producing 65% of anti-vaccine misinformation on social media platforms. She said this. We have recommended, uh, proposed that they create a robust enforcement strategy that bridges their properties and provides transparency about the rules. So about, I think this was a question asked before, there's about 12 people who are producing 65% of anti-vaccine misinformation on social media platforms. All of them remain active on Facebook, despite some even being banned on other platforms, including Facebook, ones that Facebook owns. Third, uh, it's important to take faster action against harmful posts. As you all know, information travels quite quickly on social media platforms. Sometimes it's not accurate, and Facebook needs to move more quickly to remove harmful, uh, uh, violative posts. Posts that will be within their policies for removal often remain up for days. That's too long. The information spreads too quickly. So to Fox News' Peter Ducey, that sounded like Big Brother. He asked a follow-up question. It netted this. And then speaking of misinformation and the announcement from yesterday, for how long has the administration been spying on people's Facebook profiles looking for vaccine misinformation? Well, that was quite a loaded and inaccurate question, um, which I would refute. Well, Peter, first of all, as you know, we're in, we're in a regular touch with with a range of media outlets. As as, as let me finish. As we are as we are in regular touch with social media platforms, this is publicly uh, open information. People sharing information online, just as you are all reporting information on your news stations. So where did it come from? Aaron Blake, with a follow up in the Washington Post over the weekend, wrote, "I like Ducey." was intrigued by where this number, this number came from. I, unlike Ducey, apparently, actually did 30 seconds of research on it. That's all the time it took to find the publicly available study, which even has the number Saki cited in its title, the Disinformation Dozen from the Center for Countering Digital Hate, 
and he then leads to an embedded NPR link, which takes me to my special guest on exactly this subject. From the executive summary of the report, quote, the disinformation dozen are 12 anti-vaxxers who play leading roles in spreading digital misinformation about COVID vaccines. They were selected because they have large numbers of followers, produce high volumes of anti-vaccine content, or have seen rapid growth of their social media accounts in the last two months. Imran Ahmed is the founding CEO of the aforementioned Center for Countering Digital Hate, and he joins me now. Mr. Ahmed, thank you so much for being here. It's my pleasure. What were you thinking as you either watched in real time or no doubt saw the replay of what went on in the White House press room last Thursday? Well, first of all, um, I'm delighted that such attention is being put on the issue being caused by anti-vaxxers. And when I talk about anti-vaxxers, I differentiate the people who profit from misinformation about vaccines from normal people who may be, may be confused or may be overwhelmed by the misinformation being produced by this disinformation doesn't, who are people, you know, regular members of the public who are vaccine hesitant. And I was delighted to see that but a number of the core assumptions and, and core findings in our research are, are now being embraced by the administration. Uh, specifically, that a small number of influences on the anti in, in, the anti-vax disinformation doesn't are creating an enormous amount of harm. And I think that recognition, but also it, in, inherently the failure to act by the social media companies. Which, I mean, this is the first time the president, uh, the White House has mentioned it, but they, they were actually questioned by Congress on this. Twelve attorneys general wrote to them about this. Um, three senators wrote to them about this a few months ago. So this is not the first time they've been tipped off that there's a serious problem here. And I think what the White House is now saying is, hey, we're adding our voices to it, too. What are you doing? Do the disinformation dozen all profit from this misinformation? So we would argue that anyone that spreads misinformation is doing it for a reason. They're seeking to either profit from it psychologically because they they, they get off on on spreading misinformation, um, but more likely either politically or economically. And in, when it comes to anti-vax misinformation, this is an economically motivated industry because what they seek to do is seek to draw people away from conventional medical sources, doctors, local physicians, uh, the CDC, um, and instead make themselves the person that can tell people what to do when things are going, when things are a little bit terrifying as they were for the last year and a half with COVID. And if you can get 0.01% of Americans, you know, one in 10,000 Americans to actually believe you, well, hey, you've built yourself a heck of a market because, you know, American healthcare spend is quite significant. And if you can say, don't trust everyone else, just trust me. And by the way, I've got something for you. It's called nebulized hydrogen peroxide. This is actually one of the solutions sold and advocated by the disinformation dozen, Joe McCullough. Um, nebulized means inhaled. Hydrogen peroxide is bleach. It's the stuff that makes your hair go blonde if you put it on. So th- th- these folks think, well, you can, you know, they'll sell you books, they'll sell you access to the websites, they'll sell you more and more access to esoteric sort of 
um, guides and everything else to help. It is a lot like a multi-level marketing scheme sort of wrapped in with a cult. So what is the answer to Peter Ducey's question as to how were they identified? Obviously not by the government, but by you folks at the Center for Countering Digital Hate. Well, look, I mean, I, I, I'm, the Center for Countering Digital Hate has been on this issue from the beginning. So in June 2020, we released a report called The Anti-Vax Industry, warning that COVID disinformation was being increasingly used by um, a number of malignant forces, including uh, extremists. And most of our work tends to be with violent extremists and terror groups, for example, Islamic State or neo-Nazis. Um, and we, we, we warned that if the anti-vaxxers got involved, that that would be a serious problem. All we do is track what they do and what they say. But do they reveal do they reveal their identity or is there something is there some level of investigation that you have to do to then out them? I'm looking at the 12 names. So if I had seen their posts, had they identified themselves or do you out them? That's my question. Well, these are folks who, who, who use those names to post vast amounts of information. So Robert F. Kennedy, Jr., proudly posts his videos saying that black people should not take vaccines because they have more reactions, which is untrue. Um, you know, Erin Elizabeth, uh, Joe McCullough, these are all people who post them in their own names. Literally, all we're doing is open source intelligence. So open. it's really, really simple. All we do is track them. And then when they say, you know, if you give us $50 and we'll tell you our deepest, deepest secrets, we give them the $50 using, using, uh, using one of our researchers. And we go and find that information, debunk it, and then put that into the reports that we send out to lawmakers, to journalists, to all sorts of folks. And these 12, these 12, I I just want to sort of underscore what Jen Psaki said and what came from your report. These 12 you have identified as being responsible for up to 65 percent of anti-vaccine content that you'll see in social media. So 65 of the misinformation shares, um, and, and so this takes into account the quality of that information in terms of shareability as well. So it's a compounded measure. But yes, 65% of the social media shares of misinformation uh, originate with the, the disinformation doesn't. On Facebook, it's actually a bit higher. It's 73%. So 73% in our study, and again, that's in the executive summary, of the shares on Facebook of misinformation, we found originated from the disinformation dozen. It is extraordinary then to consider that, that Mark Zuckerberg has said he's doing his utmost to help with the pandemic. It is extraordinary that a few months ago, before the House Energy and Commerce Committee, he told them that he was taking action on the disinformation dozen specifically, that today... Jen Psaki is correct in saying that no action has been taken by his company. This is Imrod Ahmed. He is the founding CEO of the Center for Countering Digital Hate. Mr. Ahmed, what would you say to people who's, who would argue that this is a fluid situation and that six months ago there would have been a policing of those on social media who blamed a leak at the Wuhan lab And now, at the end of last week, even the Biden administration was giving credence to that possibility. In other words, facts change or our understanding of the facts changes. 
So one of the things that we, that we do at the organization is we focus on the people that we know profit from either misinformation or the spread of hate, whether that's political profit, economic profit, or, 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 or psychological profit, mass producers of misinformation. And we have, for example, focused on the disinformation dozen. It took an enormous amount of work analyzing 813,000 shares to work out what was the most shared misinformation. And we do that because it's, there's, there's no point going after these. So the low-hanging fruit of someone who's like, oh, I don't know where it came from. Did it come from a lab or did it come from like the Chinese government? I mean, who, that, that, that is a fairly uh, you know, innocuous debate to have. We focused on people saying you can't trust vaccines. COVID isn't that dangerous. Doctors aren't on your side. Because the people who are systematically producing that misinformation, these are not just normal members of the public expressing an opinion. These are professional propagandists undermining our pandemic response at a, at a national and, in fact, global level. Because these guys and, and, and gals, unfortunately, have an influence that is global in nature. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. has a lot of impact in Scandinavia in um, in Latin America, in other countries around the in, world. In which in which so of in your categories in which of your categories does he fall? Is do you argue that Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is profiting politically, psychologically, or financially? Because I think I heard you say those are the three categories of profit. So if anyone wants to know more about the profit motive and how these folks profit, we did a very detailed report alongside Channel 4, the, the, the British documentary-making channel. So we, there was a 90-minute documentary um, called uh, the, 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 the Anti-Vax Conspiracy, and we produced a report that went with it called the, the Pandemic Profiteers. And in that, for every single individual, we go through how much they're paid, how much money they But give, give me the short answer, just so my audience knows, because he, his is the most recognizable name of the dozen. So what's the answer for Kennedy? How is he, how do you claim he's profiting? So he's personally making a quarter of a million dollars a year in salary from, from, the, from the charity that he's got set up, which, which sort of essentially runs this misinformation through it which goes and spreads this misinformation, the Children's Health Foundation. We have a full detailed breakdown of his income streams in that document. And just on Saturday, and probably gotten drowned under everything else, or was it Friday morning, the Washington Post published a piece. Um, it's a complaint, it's a letter from Terrell McSweeney, a former FTC commissioner to the current FTC chair, actually detailing other ways in which he profits. For example, by refer, so he uses his own email list to refer people to other members of the disinformation dozen and then profits from, from having cross-sold. This is, I mean, this is an industry. It's, so it, let, what, me, let, me ask, let me ask this, very, this very final clear. question. Mr. Ahmed, let me ask this final question uh, from a 30,000-foot from a perspective. In other words, let, let's step back. Is the answer to police individuals like the disinformation dozen and remove them from social media platforms, or is it better to drown them out with factual information? In other words, I worry that if you censor them, then you create more interest and curiosity about them and they'll have more of an audience than they otherwise would have. What's your answer to that question? 
So, so the, the academia on counter-narratives, as they're called, um, is that very simply, when it comes to conspiracy theories, they don't work. That once someone has swallowed a conspiracy theory, and you might know this from someone in your own life who's fallen for a conspiracy theory and how difficult it is to dislodge it. In fact, what you often see is rabbit holing. So people, because once someone's uh, swallowed a conspiracy theory, they'll often start rabbit holing for more and more and more. Um, the best way to reduce the, the, the amount of people being infected with conspiracy theories is to reduce the spread, uh, almost like we have with COVID. You reduce the R0, the transmission rate. And these people are specifically breaching the rules of these platforms. Look, I go and use Instagram and Twitter and Facebook myself, and you know, my family too. And I would expect an environment in which the rules as set out, the community standards, are being enforced. You don't want to go and post or to, to, to communicate on a platform in which you don't know if, if what's being shown to you is in fact someone who's... But with, but, being but with, three, but with three billion, but Mr. Ahmed, with three billion users, is it really possible to effectively police that platform? It's somehow possible for them to monetize three and a half billion people's worth of data. So three and a half billion people, all of our thoughts, all of our ideas, they're constantly surveilling us and they're selling that information to advertisers. And yet, when it comes to keeping us safe, whether it's from extremism or it is from misinformation that might lead someone that we care about to die and that has actually stopped up the entire country. And I live in the United States, so believe me, this is personal as well for me. That, that this is stopping the entire country from being able to contain coronavirus. You're damn right that I would expect them to put some of those profits. Well, uh, look, I'm agreeing. I'm agreeing with you. I'm agreeing with you as to the magnitude of the problem. And frankly, I think an even larger problem are people with media platforms, not social media, conventional cable television, radio who are doing an equal or more harm than the people you've identified. I'd love to come up with a, a dozen list of, of media provocateurs. Maybe that could be your next project. But from a philosophical I, standpoint, I, I I'm, just, I'm just wondering what's the best approach. F final comment, and you can have the response. It reminds me of the important subject of Holocaust denial. When European nations have outlawed Holocaust denial, I've similarly wondered whether a better strategy is to confront those folks with facts rather than to drive them underground where there's now a certain curiosity or even morbid cachet about them. That's what I'm thinking. You get the final word. So when it came to Holocaust denial in Germany, a country that understands why Holocaust denial is so dangerous, they actually passed a law called the Nets DG, which bans Holocaust denial on social media platforms. And they've, they've managed to clean up a lot of German language Holocaust denial to remove it from those spaces. Do you want to know why? Because Facebook immediately opened moderation centers throughout Germany to ensure that it was just a few thousand people, but just about enough to be able to, 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 to deal with the problem. The truth is that social media companies are unwilling to reinvest their profits back into what they need to do, which is to clean up their platforms. And secondly, we have no tools. When there are only 12 people who are causing such harm, the government actually is reduced to begging them to do something about it. And they're the only industry that suffer no costs for the harm they create. Yeah, I must, I must say, I don't want to bury the lead. Pretty shocking that just 
12 people can come up with 65% of the content that we are discussing. Imran Ahmed, thank you, sir, for your time. I really appreciate it. Circle back to me when you come up with a, a list of a dozen media provocateurs, okay? Thank you so much. Thank you. The Smirconish Podcast for Independent Minds. Listen to Michael Smirconish live weekdays from 9 a.m. to noon east on Sirius XM's POTUS Channel 124 or anytime on the SXM app. Connect with Michael on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and at Smirconish.com. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely their fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Superlight Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Superlight shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts.